prayer for Christmas, remembering its real meaning, which is the coming of the Messiah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we spoke about him a little bit last week, a well-known pastor and theologian, quotes Luke twenty-one twenty-eight when he says, Look up and raise your heads. When referring to the Advent season, and by stating this, he's declaring that we shouldn't be sorrowful in our troubles during this season. We should be expectant and acting as new creatures in Christ. Now, he proclaimed that Christ created us as new people. And he reminds us that the Advent season should encourage us to remember that in Christ we are new people. Being a new person, we are no longer living in this world as a slave to our own sin. We're to act as if we have something to live for as well as something to die for. And as we look up, as we raise our heads, we gaze away from the troubles of this world. We recognize that our redemption has arised or arrived when Jesus left his place in heaven and came to this earth as a baby. Through the sinless life and through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from our alienation from God. And that's something that we have to remember again and again. We remind ourselves that we are no longer alienated from God. We have been freed from our slavery to sin and we are redeemed as children of God. Bonhoeffer also reminds us that we're waiting for the last advent, that Christ will return and there will be a new heaven and new earth and those who believe in him will spend eternity with him. Now, Advent prompts us to take time each day this month and remember that Jesus came to earth for one reason, and that's to save his people. Luke 19.10 states that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Advent is the time for all believers to celebrate the arrival of the Messiah as well as prepare for his second coming, and we're to celebrate this wonderful gift that we have been given by our Lord Jesus Christ as we experience the joy of Christmas together. Now, in the Advent season, we've, we've talked about this. In each sermon, we'll be talking about the significance of what each candle represents. The four candles on the Advent wreath represent the four weeks of the Advent season. And last week, we lighted and spoke about the first candle, which represents hope. And theologian R.C. Sproul writes that there are two ways that hope is used in the Bible. First, the object of our hope is Jesus Christ. Christ is our hope for eternal life. And second, hope is the assurance regarding the fulfillment of God's promises. Hope is our assurance that God will finish all the things that he has started and we can be confident that he will do all that he has promised that he will do. The Christian is called to have hope, to have assurance in the resurrection of God's people and the coming of his kingdom. 
we have assurance that Jesus is returning. What great hope we have. Now, it's important to know the difference between faith and hope. The Bible shows that faith and hope are distinct, yet they're related. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And R.C. Sproul explains this a little bit more for us by saying, Faith is trust in what God has already done. Hope is trust in what God promises for the future. It's the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who gives us hope. He is also the one who gives us the ability to have faith. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit with us is a guarantee that the coming of, of coming kingdom of God is, is coming. Sproul writes that the Spirit is a down payment for the kingdom of his presence. His presence gives us assurance that the kingdom will be fully consummated. And as a reminder, the Advent wreath has three more candles on it to be lighted. The second candle of the wreath represents peace, which was lighted today. And the third candle, joy. The fourth candle, love. The center candle is the Christ candle, which is usually lighted on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. This year, we'll be lighting it the day after Christmas on that Sunday. So the second candle, which was lighted today, is the candle which signifies peace. After last year's troubles, peace seems to be something that's on people's minds today. Now, as I prepare for any topic that I'm writing on and getting ready to present, I usually utilize my books in my library, but I'll also go online and look around and, and see what other people are saying about peace at this time. And as I was researching today's topic, I found that the topic of peace is very popular this year, particularly on the Internet. There are a number of church sermons that are speaking about peace, but also, more interesting, I noticed that there are secular sources that have addressed the topic of peace from a biblical perspective, which is odd. There were articles in Country Living Magazine, Parade Magazine, Southern Living, Woman's Day, and even on Yahoo Sports. All of these were listing biblical references and verses about peace. Now, I think it's great that these secular sources are sourcing the Bible and gleaning its wisdom regarding the topic of peace. And this is as it should be. This is where we know what true peace is. We as Christians know and believe, as the psalmist wrote, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So if anyone is to understand what true peace is, it has to begin with God's word, the Bible. So I, I am fully in line with them using that as a reference. But as we're discussing the significance of 
the candles of Advent, we see that love, joy, peace are a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 tells us that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control are attributes that the Holy Spirit gives to Christ's followers. Because it is an attribute that is provided by the Holy Spirit and because it is him that provides this for us, we know as believers what true peace is. They're referencing the scriptures, but without the the Holy Spirit, if they don't have the Holy Spirit, they can't really enact true peace. They can't really know what true peace, true love, true hope, faithfulness is. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can practice these attributes, particularly peace with another person. So when writing about peace, this is an interesting perspective. Theologian Wayne Grudem writes that peace, or he calls it order, is considered an attribute of God. He references 1 Corinthians 14.33 in this, and he says, that passage says, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And he states that God's actions are characterized by peace and not of disorder. So another way of thinking of disorder is that it's unrest or confusion in ourselves. And whenever our soul is not at peace, it can be better explained that we're restless or confused. Paul in 2 Thessalonians calls Jesus the Lord of peace who gives us peace at all times in every way. Now that's that's a pretty broad brushstroke there. At all times in every way, Jesus gives us peace. In 1 Thessalonians, he tells, tells the people, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And then in his letters to the Philippians, he says that the peace of God transcends all understanding and it will guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. So we spoke about the main scripture passages being Romans 1 through 11. We're going to focus this week on verses 1 and 2. Let me go over that one more time. Romans 1 and 2, or 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, For those of us who have been in church all our our lives, it can be easy to gloss over this truth. This scripture passage teaches us something that much of the scriptures teach us, and we think, we know this, we've got this. So why is it important for us to truly understand and share with others, and, and I'd add, even to the point of celebration, 
how we are justified and how we have peace with God. There's a large church here in Greenville that a friend of mine attended as a youth. And the church has a number of fine people in its congregation. My friend eventually had to leave the church because she was ostracized in her youth group. Now, she wasn't weird. She wasn't unfriendly. There was nothing that was odd about her and her characteristics. The one thing that she did in this church was that she was outspoken that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. Furthermore, she claimed that the Bible is true and faithful and that the words in it are from God and should be obeyed. Sadly, this church teaches their congregation to be tolerant of others' beliefs. And because of her beliefs... In the, in the fact that Scripture is faithful, she's not, she wasn't welcome. Now, this church is considered a mainline Protestant church, and it is well-known and respected by a number of people here in Greenville. There's so much misinformation and cultural bias regarding opinion and thought today and that's even in our churches. And we need to regularly remind ourselves that the primary truths of the gospel are the foundation of everything that we believe. We've got to take this to heart and remember that this is why who we are. Many of you are reading a book called Flickering Lamps by Henry and Richard Blackaby. And in, there's a, in their uh, book, there's a comment that I think that we will be really wise to remember. And the comment goes, the problem for many churches and some entire denominations is that their people are disoriented from God. They go to church to attend a service, to hear a preaching, or to put their children in Sunday school but no one helps them to, under, to understand that Christ is seeking to personally relate with them. I am so thankful that we have a pastor who will always tell us about the wonderful grace that has been shown to us by Jesus Christ. And I know that Marty will always be faithful to the word and preach how Jesus sacrificed himself so that our relationship with God can be restored. And as long as I'm able to preach from this pulpit, I'll do the same. It's not something, though, that we should take for granted. It's only by the grace of God that we attend a church that has a senior pastor who has a high value of Scripture and seeks to bring glory to God in every word that he uses and every action that he takes. I am so thankful for this man. The truth is that mankind in his natural condition is condemned. 
John 3.19 states, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. To be condemned means that God has declared that a person is sinful and his sin must be judged. But God, knowing our inabilities and our weaknesses, sent Christ to be the recipient of this judgment that was meant for us. Christ's death for our sin on the cross has brought about justification for those who accept him as their Lord. And because Christ's followers have been justified through our relationship with Jesus, God declares them righteous. Christ's righteousness has been given to his followers followers as a result of this gift, and they have peace with God. Or as a result of this peace or this gift, they have peace with God. So whoever is justified by faith in Christ is declared righteous before God. And whoever is declared righteous is at peace with God. Romans 8.1 declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Now there's an author that I love. His name is Ken Sandy. And he's written a book called The Peacemaker. And in this book, Sandy writes that nothing reveals God's concern for peace more or peace with mankind more vividly than his decision to send Jesus to provide a way for us to have peace. What a great, wonderful thought. He states that from the beginning to the end, Jesus' mission was one of peacemaking. In Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus is given the title Prince of Peace. And Jesus sacrificed his life so that we would experience peace with God and one another. But Sandy goes on to explain that the peace that God offers us has three dimensions. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another. And we have peace within ourselves. Now, being at peace with God, we've talked about this a little bit, but this was satisfied by Jesus' sinless life and sacrificial death. John 3.16 tells us that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. As mentioned before, Jesus sacrificed himself for us, making it possible for us to be at peace with God. Now, we have to remember that our good works will not bring us peace with God. So many people in the world today believe that good works is the key. And in counseling, when I speak with people about the, I, I'll ask this question. I'll say, when you stand before God and he asks you why he should allow you into his heaven, what will you say? And sadly, many will say, well, I've helped others. And I've volunteered at the soup kitchen. And I hope that the good things that I've done outweigh the bad things that I've done. You will not believe the number of people out in our culture, out in our community, who believe this, that they are weighing 
their good works as something that they're doing more than their bad works and that this is going to get them into heaven. And that's why it's important that we know the reason why we have grace and peace with God. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not in your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before mankind that we should walk in them. So we have been saved by God's grace alone. But God calls us also to be at peace with one another. In Romans twelve eighteen, we read, if at possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In another letter, Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. That's in Colossians 3.15. So unity, harmony, and understanding are the indications that we're living at peace with one another. Having Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior gives us the ability to be able to experience peace within ourselves too. I don't, I don't know if you remember the times. Most of you were, were brought or, or came to Christ at a young life. But I can remember the times that I didn't belong, the time that I didn't belong to Christ that time of inner turmoil, trying to figure out what was missing. And then once Christ accepted me, came to me, filled my heart, that changed. That inner turmoil was gone. So with Christ, we have eternal peace. We have a sense of wholeness. We have that sense of contentment and rest and security. So internal peace is a gift from God that can only come from a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus brings about righteousness, which brings internal peace. We're not battling this sinful nature and sinful world on our own. Without the Holy Spirit, we're not even trying to battle this sinful world or sinful nature. But with the Holy Spirit, we have his help and we have that peace. Isaiah, Isaiah thirty two seventeen says that the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. So the person who wants to experience true internal peace must be reconciled to God through his Savior, Jesus Christ. They must trust in Jesus Christ. And with this is done, he is able to have harmonious relationships with other people too. As we read before, the Bible regularly refers to God as the God of peace. And throughout Scripture, God communicates that desire to bless his people with peace, using them to bring peace to other people too. 
So in the Bible, God gives us clear direction how to have peace with one another. It starts with Matthew 5.23. It says, if you are offering your gift at an altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Now, isn't this an interesting perspective? We normally wait for another person to come to us to apologize. Or we brush off some, uh, someone's anger by saying, oh, you'll get over it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. But notice what's being said here. Peace is so important that even if you are in the midst of worshiping in church, you're to remember, and you remember that someone's angry with you, you should stop what you're doing and go and seek reconciliation. Peace in the family of God is that important. So what about our responsibility to keep peace within the body of, of Christ? Well, Ken Sandy writes another comment that I think is absolutely amazing and we should remember this, if I am only 2% responsible for a conflict, I am 100% responsible for that 2%. Confession of your fault to the person you offended is the way that you fully own your part of a conflict. So taking responsibility for your part of a conflict is a crucial step toward living peacefully with another person. Now, an important thing to remember is that even though you are in the conflict, God will use this opportunity for both of you to help glor or to bring glory to him. So what if someone has sinned against you? They've wronged you, and it's something that has affected your relationship with that other person. Remember that in everything that we do, we're to bring glory to God. And that's in every way possible, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, in the way that we think. In everything that we do, we're either glorifying God or we're glorifying something or someone else. And in most cases, we're glorifying ourselves rather than glorifying God. If we're in conflict with someone and we, we, we're talking down to them or we're responding negatively to them, we're building ourselves up. We're not thinking in love about that other person. If we're seeking to glorify God, we should always consider on focusing on God's will for us and pleasing him in the situation that we're in. The way that we glorify God is to follow what the Bible tells us to do. And because the Bible is God's word, we can trust what it says. God is trustworthy, and we can depend on him to help us through any troubling circumstance that we may find ourselves in. So one way that we can glorify God and serve another is to consider forgiving minor disputes and offenses before we confront that other person. 
And in many times, this means that you consider peace as more important than your own pride and personal rights. And that's tough. That's tough for any of us to do. But understanding biblical forgiveness is something that's key. And this is something else that we forget in our relationship with Christ. We forget how we have been forgiven and how Christ has forgiven us. When you forgive another person, you forgive as Christ models forgiveness for us. And true forgiveness means more than just saying, I'm sorry. How many of you can show me this, the words, I'm sorry, in the Bible? Not, not the New Living Version, okay? But how many of you can tell me where it says, I'm sorry, in the Bible? I'm sorry is something that we've created as a platitude to say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, we don't really get to the root of forgiveness by saying I'm sorry. I'm sorry really satisfies my own need for justification rather than really truly seeking forgiveness. And as believers, we know that we are commanded to forgive one another as another person asks for forgiveness particularly a believer who asks for forgiveness Ephesians 4 31 and 32 tells us to get rid of all bitterness anger rage brawling and slander along with every form of malice be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another just as Christ God forgave you so we have a model that we know that we are supposed to, to emulate in regard to forgiveness. Now, another important verse in, is Matthew six fourteen and 15, and it says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness is not an option for the follower of Christ. We must always be ready and willing to forgive one another. Even when we're not asked, we need to have the desire in our hearts to live at peace with that other person. We need to have that attitude of forgiving of forgiveness before God as if we had already forgiven that person. So, a willingness to forgive brings with it a great responsibility. And I want to talk with you a little bit about this. By your willingness to forgive, you agree to four promises. Now, we're to emulate Christ and how he forgives us. So how does Christ forgive us? Well, when we forgive another person, we are promising to that other person that we will not dwell on the incident. What does it mean that I'm not going to go back and say, okay, yeah, I forgive you. That's all right. And then I'm going to go home and I'm going to think about it a little bit more and let it stir up my emotions in my heart a little bit more. Now, y'all know we do this. Come on. We, we, we all do this. We forgive, yet we're still thinking about it. What if Christ did that to us? But we promise not to dwell on the incident. Second, 
We will not bring up the incident again and again and use it against that person again how many times have you gotten into an argument with your spouse I'll just bring up your spouse and that spouse has asked for forgiveness for something but six months later you're saying but yeah you remember you did this we're not to do that as forgivers That's not what Christ does with us. Third, you will not talk with others about the incident. Again, there's reasons for not talking with others. Why taint someone else's beliefs or their their thoughts about another person because of your perspective on a particular circumstance or an incident? And then fourth, you will not let the incident cause problems or prohibit you from having a personal relationship with that person who you have forgiven. I don't know about you, but these things are hard. In my mind, this is hard to do. It's hard to remember to do these things, and and I actually came across this great little saying here. This is a book called The Young Peacemaker. Now, we've been reading or quoting from The Peacemaker. This is The Young Peacemaker. And the author has made a little poem that would help young people to remember this particular, uh, these particular promises. And this will be something for you to remember. Good thought hurt you not. Gossip never. Friends forever. That's the thoughts that we should have as we're forgiving other people, particularly people that are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what if the offense is not a small matter that can be overlooked? A useful principle of reconciliation is found in Matthew 18. And most of us look at this as a passage on church discipline, but it's, it's, it's on us being able to communicate and live with one another in peace. So Matthew 18 tells us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That's in Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. So a principle in this verse shows that initially, as, as we are confronting this issue between two people, uh, someone else with us, that, that that's to be settled between only us and that other person. It's to be, it's to be settled in private. So you shouldn't be talking, you shouldn't be gossiping about the other person or speaking poorly about him, not that any of you would. But the matter should be discussed with this person only. The only time that I would ever recommend having another person involved in this initial conversations is that when you need wise advice. 
And there are people, friends, that you can say, look, I need to, I want to glorify God in this circumstance. Help me to have wise advice on how to confront this issue. Or am I blowing it out of proportion? So anytime that you can settle a disagreement or private uh, or a dispute privately, you need to do that. Go to that person and in humility, seeking to honor God in everything that you're doing, talk with that person about the offense. But many times the matter that we have is just a misunderstanding. Again, I bring up our spouses. Again, how many times have, have... has a comment that's been made been taken out of context or it's something that's been misinterpreted many times in that situation that person has no idea that they've offended you and I've found that in most cases that person appreciates the opportunity to be confronted by it to talk with you about it and say, oh my gosh, I never meant that. Please forgive me. I, I don't know about y'all, but I, I've had times where I've had friends who have given me a cold shoulder and I've had no understanding, no reason why in my mind that that person should do that. Well, what if we just let that go on and on and on? Why not just go right up and say, gosh, if I offended you in some way, have I done something that has, has, has been of an offense? Let me, let's talk about it. And in most cases, it's not about us. It's about something else that's going on. It's a misunderstanding. We can take away so much conflict or potential conflict just by talking with one another. Good communication and willingness to listen is key to clearing up misunderstandings that bring conflict. But there are some circumstances where sinfulness and pride will prevail, or, uh, pride will prevail and that offending person needs to take responsibility for it. And in that case, you have to confront that person. I mean, that person may be doing something that is offensive to God. And as a brother in Christ, we have that responsibility, or a sister in Christ, we have that responsibility to reach out to them and show them where that, uh, that conflict needs to be changed or that, that situation needs to be changed. And perhaps that conflict can be um, solved. Our, God is the, our goal is to glorify God in every way that we possibly can in a conflict. Paul in his letters to Colossians write, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must forgive And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. So why do we do this? We do this because God is at peace with us because of Jesus. And we are to be at peace with one another as a body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
We talked about this before. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled him to us, himself to us, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to this message of reconciliation. And as a result, we read, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making this appeal, his, his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Scripture refers to the followers of Christ as ambassadors to Christ, of Christ. Philippians 2.14 tells us, all th- Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among you, whom you shine as lights of the world. Now, when we're at peace with one another, we shine as lights in the world to those who need to see the reason that we can live with one another in peace. We belong to Jesus Christ. Praise God we belong to Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors to Christ in this world and particularly in this church as people are seeing us, as we relate to one another We are at peace with one another and people know that because we love one another, we belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for giving us peace with the Father. Thank you through Jesus Christ. We have that ability to be able to be at peace. The sacrifice that he made has given us that opportunity to be able to be in fellowship. And through the help of the Holy Spirit, we can live out that hope and peace and love and joy that only you can provide. Lord, help us, help us, please, to show the love that we have one another by sharing in peace with one another. But that everyone from outside, particularly in the community that we're in, can see that we belong to you because we're at peace with one another and we show love with one another. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.